You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Turning to the Mystics. In today's episode, we're going to be turning to the listener questions that have come in in response to Season 6 on Julian of Norwich. And I'm here with Jim. And Jim, we've had just some lovely questions come through for this season. It's good to be with you. Yes, I was... Two things. One, I was really moved by the depth and sincerity of the questions. And um, and also, it's very much... They're path questions. They're the kind of questions that seekers ask. And I think that's, you know, that's what these, the teachings of these mystics are trying to open up these very questions within ourselves and how to live by them and so on. So just, yeah, some lovely questions. Yes, beautiful. And we can only do a representative sample. You know, we're going to do a selection that's Mm -hmm. representative of the the caliber of the questions that they're all so good. We could go on and on with it, actually with each mm-hmm. one. So very nice. Yes, absolutely. I think we both said we could take any one of the questions and oh. do a whole episode mm-hmm. on them. They're so yeah. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. And uh, so I did just want to thank everyone who sent in a question. I was, it's just an honor and a privilege to get to read them. And I feel very touched by the stories and um, looking forward to your responses today, Jim. So we get started. Yes. Okay, so the first one is from Bonnie, and she says, Would you comment on the shocking and vivid imagery of Julian's writings describing the passion, the the intended effect upon the reader? I have difficulty reconciling these descriptions with her beautiful poetic message throughout the book. I have tried to read her works through but become discouraged and disconcerted when I encounter such emotional language. Well, uh, in part, uh, her kind of graphic description of the intensity of suffering is part of a cultural, historical uh, spirit of the age she lived in. This kind of devotional love for Jesus crucified and the cross. So she's part of her own cultural setting. That's where part of it comes from. The other part of it comes from the fact that in her near-death experience that she had where the priest held up the crucifix is where she had her, her mystical awakening. And the, another part of it is to consider that her language of the suffering is shocking because it reminds us the crucifixion was shocking. It was extremely mm-hmm. violent and brutal. So any attempt, we don't like to hear that or that bothers me, it should bother us. And uh, because it's so deeply bothersome, it was so cruel. The next thing is, is that <clears throat> her whole insight is that the, the, the intense imagery of Jesus' suffering is actually the infinite love of God incarnate in Jesus, merging with and identified with our anguish. And so the cruelty in Jesus is, our, is the cruelty inflicted on all of us. And Jesus owns it. Jesus takes it on. Greater love than this is no one. Then he lays down his life for his friends. So paradoxically, 
out of the very bitterness of the cross, we find that there's a love, one with us uh, in the bitterness itself, which is the experience of experiential salvation. And lastly, I would think, you know, that by their fruit you shall know them. And she's sitting in her hermitage, and some of those eloquent, beautiful things that she says out of that. So it's almost in a similar to the light of the resurrection, unexpectedly shining out of the death of Jesus. Mm. And it's that love. And how often, sometimes some of our graces that bless us to this day, came to us in moments of darkness, or pain, or moments of, in the darkness itself, we found something we never would have found otherwise about frailty and God's mercy and so on. But it, it, it is, it, she's so unique that way. Mm. The strange mixture of these two things, just part of her own path and what she was called to do. Mm. So this reconciling of the shocking and vivid imagery describing the passion to the beautiful poetry, you're saying actually um, just like the cross, the vision of the it cross, the which, cross. Ha- which has, has both, yeah, the, the suffering and the love but, and the beauty incorporated. See, I think the mysterious place for her too is uh, what, what is the point at which the suffering within and beyond ourself is touched by the presence of God? And what, what is that mysterious place within us, you know, dying the inner death, merging with the suffering and the love that liberates us from the suffering? And so she's kind of circling around this mysterious place in all of us. Mm. So, yeah. Wow. The next question is from Margaret, and she says, I have experience with Julian of Norwich an opening of my heart to all humanity particularly those suffering day to day. It shows itself through many spontaneous pushes to love, help and act that don't go through reason or thought but are heart-based or deeper even than that. Before this, I was very much afraid of the face of Jesus crucified and suffering. But as Julian experienced this and Jim explained, I find it is accessing a deeper compassion in me. However, moment by moment, how does one not be overcome by this suffering? to be able to draw on the deep wellspring of love, we are wrapped in as beloved of God as we get to know him in us. Yes, you know, reflecting on this, what she's asking here. Um, You know, first of all, um, we're assuming something here, that we're, 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 uh, we're being called to be invited to be um, a, a non-violent, safe, protective person and um, honoring the wholeness of life and the mystery of life and the happiness of life. And then when suffering does occur, you know, we're to do our best to lessen it and if possible, remove it. But in an inner peace, not dependent, on the outcome of our efforts to do so, because it's the peace of God on which everything depends. And, and so at one level, suffering is suffering, and suffering is terrible. So to romanticize it in any way is really disrespects the suffering person. 
the only authentic response is, I'm so deeply sorry you're having to go through this. You know, it's painful. But what's all, and it's also risky because you can go under. You can go into mm -hmm. despair. You can become bitter. You can all, it's risky business. You know, we need to be very careful with this. But the other part of it is also true that although suffering is terrible and we need to work at it, it's not just terrible. And we learn things in it. You know, it's strange to me, out of a lot of what I've come to learn over time about God and so on, it, it came to me um, out of my trauma from the time I was three years old. A lot of it did. And when I sit with people in psychotherapy, I worked with adult survivors of childhood trauma who wanted spirituality to be a resource in their suffering. And I would often feel they would share these things. I'd walk with them and listen to them and sift it out. And at the end of the day, I felt strangely graced and grateful for the opportunity to be with people like this. You know, the amazing resiliency of the human spirit, see, mm. to face what it needs to face, to walk through it, and to be transformed by it. See, be transformed by it. My oldest daughter is a hospice nurse, so all day long she admits people into hospice sits by their bedside, talks to the family, and we, we have a lot of talks about it, how some cases are very hard, but how fortunate she feels, all that she learns from it. So mm -hmm. there's a strange thing about compassionate tenderness that listens to and befriends and walks with the mystery of suffering, which really the presence of God hidden in it, while at the same time doing our best to be a nonviolent person that doesn't add to it and do our very best to lessen or remove it. It's very, it's a delicate, mysterious mm -hmm. thing for us, so personal for each of yes. us, I think. Yeah. And, and to be aware of your own limits. Yeah. I yeah. Think. <clears throat> this person worrying about becoming overwhelmed. Yeah. It's not helpful to the suffering person if you do become overwhelmed. So to recognize as human beings, we might have different limitations given our background. Let me and, add to that. That's a good point yeah. with trauma. You know, I think for a traumatized person, one of the fears is they owe it to you not to let you get too close to them or they'll bring you down. Mm. See? And so if I'm a psychotherapist who works with trauma, the person is counting on me that I'm grounded in a depth of presence that can withstand the pain. And in that depth of presence, I'm grounded in it, it allows me to then, I have one foot grounded in the presence, but I take the other foot and put it with them in the circle of their suffering. So mm -hmm. it forms like a bridge like this. And, um, uh, and so I owe it to the person and to myself to take care of myself. Yeah. And so I have to interiorly back off or distract myself, be present, get pure supervision. I have to... Uh, and um, sometimes people who work with serious illness or work with, this is secondary post-traumatic stress disorder. You're traumatized by being in the presence of traumatized people. And so you have to be on guard and be very real about this and take care of yourself. And uh, another, you know, so deeply personal yes. thing. Yes, yes. But how wonderful, uh, Margaret, sharing this, spontaneous push to help and act and yeah. that's not going through reason that feels very heart-based. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, and yeah, also amazing. strangely, and I think of Dr. Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa Calcutta, you know, you just get the feeling, uh, you see videos of Mother Teresa Calcutta talking. Mm -hmm. She's such a deeply present 
-hmm. grounded person who, working with the poorest of the poor, sees suffering all day long, but she doesn't drown in it, you know, but she walks with it. And sometimes we're called in unexpected ways through family members and deaths and sorrow and uh, to take care of herself, then realize we're, we're being wizened or uh, made the wiser about mm-hmm. how mysterious God's presence is in the fragility of our lives. And I think Julian very much is at the heart of that mystery. Mm-hmm. We have a question from Elizabeth, and I'll read her question, and there's, there's some more context which will probably come out. Um, but. She writes a question, this idea of praying for illness was so contrary to my lifestyle of healthy eating, exercise, and preventative medicine, I had a really strong emotional reaction to it. And so just wondering your thoughts on that, Jim, that it it, it does seem odd <laughs> that someone would pray for an illness, um, especially in today's day and age. Uh, it is odd. And she says that it's odd. She mm-hmm. says, "I realize." Yeah, she says, yeah. "I realize this is not your typical thing." And here's what I think about it: several things. One, it is odd. Secondly, you know, sometimes we can be unexpectedly drawn in a certain direction. We can't explain to anybody, including ourselves. But we're mm. drawn there, and I think she was drawn there, especially when you see providentially how she was radicalized in that. Really. And also how, by the very fact she's so merged with that suffering, she was such a source of deep peace. And re- I don't forget, she was writing during the Black Plague. People mm-hmm. were dying all around. If people were coming, she just knew it was just tragic, tragic, the death that she saw. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just that she brought solace to the people coming to the little window. Centuries later, she brings solace to us. Mm-hmm. And so by their fruit you shall know them, by the mm-hmm. beauty of the things that she says. She reveals kind of the authenticity of this unusual charism or calling that she had. Yes. What was amazing to me about that part of the story is that she she only remembered that she'd prayed that prayer after she'd gone through this yeah. near-death experience. And then she, so it sounded like a very she was a child it was a very childlike prayer that what it didn't stick with her like she's praying that daily until it happened it was it came in a moment of time but in a way it confirmed the presence of God in her life from from that early moment that's a very good point I think that is a big part of it she was a young girl mm-hmm. another thing when we when we look back and see the things that we prayed for, thought about when we were 12 or 14. Yes. We never yes. would think of, you know, when we're 30 or 40 or 50. Yes. And uh, so I think you're right. There was a childlike quality, like a, na- a naivete. Yes. But with a hidden truth in it. See? Yes. But this not the kind of thing she would pray for older and wiser. She wouldn't, it was part of her autobiographical story in her life. Yeah, it's a good point, I think. Yeah. Yes. And then speaking how that, experience continues to help us today. So uh, Elizabeth, who wrote in that question, um, I don't know if you want to share, Jim, but tells an amazing story of after having this reaction to Julian praying for suffering, then (laughs) became quite sick. Yeah. Yeah. And ended up in a near-death experience herself. Yeah, she could. It really is. It's it's very touching here. She had this natural revulsion or whatever thing. Unexpectedly, she ends up in the hospital and realized she could die. Yeah. But then 
uh, and then she says, with, with this illness, it brought me down deeper into the ocean, which is God, more than I could have ever known. Mm. And so she, she learns something there, unexplainable and touching. That's why I think it's always good to be aware that whenever we turn towards mystical things like this, mm-hmm. we'll always have to be sensitive to this. To, if we're exploring mystical consciousness, we need to be conscious of the state of consciousness we're in when we explore mystical consciousness. Mm-hmm. And if we're exploring it from the vantage point of our ego illumined by faith, see, it's like we're trying to get a hold of something you know, that's ungraspable. And it's through our own silence and our own love and our own growth that dawns on us little by little as we're led by the beauty of the mystics' teachings. We're kind of led deeper into these intimate realizations that before had eluded us. Yes. It's always helpful to see that, I think. Yes, yes. I love this part where she says, for me, this meant that to live or die, we are always held in God's infinite loving arms, whether I am in body or in spirit. Yeah. And, and she was encouraged by that. Uh, how, yeah. how I put it poetically, radically, is that uh, even if we burn to death, fire is trustworthy. Mm. Even if we drown, water is trustworthy. Even if someone carries us off and does terrible things to us, is our brother and sister deeply broken and deeply confused? See? Because ultimately speaking, nobody dies. We're all eternal. Mm. And uh, we're, that's the mystical. We're trying, like, um, incarnate infinity, intimately realized. And uh, it's just this mysterious place where these paradoxical truths touch us in ways that baffle our own ego consciousness. You know? Yes, yes. I think, I think too, uh, how sometimes, you know, you, you hear the thing or you read the book that was that was setting you up to be ready for yeah. the next thing and exactly. how amazing that, you know, season six Julie and, and this person had tuned in and then uh, went through this experience that Julian was able to help her with. Yeah. You know, Thomas Merton. Re- and you were able to help her with too, Jim. I know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And notice how when she shares this with us, it helps us. Yes. Because of oh, it's yes. her life. It's, you know, it speaks out of her life. Thomas Merton once said in the monastery that, reminded us that the word martyr means witness. Mm. And he said, the martyr doesn't give up life. The martyr gives up having life. And mm. in giving, giving up having it reveals the essence of life, which is not for that. The, they never had it in the first yes, place. Yes, we don't have it. If we don't belong to ourselves. It, yeah. it isn't, we, don't, we don't own our next heartbeat. You know? And uh, so we're, this is this delicate realm that we, we're in as God draws closer and closer, I think. Uh, another question. This is uh, also from a person called Margaret. Listening to your lived conversation has opened my being again to be able to fall into the energy and lineage of those previous mystics, our ancestors. I breathe easier, certain no matter what, Julian has my back and we begin this journey together. This morning I realize I'm being prepared to open my relationship with God in the most ordinary of things so that I don't keep looking over the wall for the way ahead when it is right there in front of me. just yeah. wondered if you'd comment on that one, Jim. Yes. Yeah, first of all, I, I think with Julian and all these mystics, um, see, in a way, what it is that we're trying to uh, 
take in here is this idea is there's this infinite that the infinite love of God in a self-donating act is infinitely giving the infinite love of God to us as our deepest identity. And so uh, we can somehow handle being uh, conditionally loved. But in unconditional love, there's no control. See? There's no control in unconditional love. And um, that being overtaken by love or being have it wash over us and mm. leaving us empty-handed without explanations. I think this love is at the heart of the mystical experience. Now, sometimes mm. it does wash over us in a very forceful way, but often it happens in subtle, delicate ways, in ordinariness. So there's something mm. about watering the house plants or um, pouring boiling water for tea or lying awake at night in the dark when you can't sleep. And there, there's the, the utter simplicity just the, getting out of bed in the morning and touching our feet to the floor, realizing that everything has about it a certain a, a stature that can't be comprehended. You know, everything is the intimate simplicity. God's the infinity of the intimate simplicity of standing up and sitting down. And we're trying to be stabilized in that sensitivity, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, Beautiful. notice it's hard to explain this to anybody. People don't yes, usually talk yeah. this way. <laughs> at no. all. But in our heart, we find in the mystics good company. You know, they, 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 they encourage us to open our heart to be comfortable with these such intimacies. Yes. I'm thinking of my dog this morning sitting, finding the sunlight coming through and sitting right in the, the sun, yeah. in the sunshine and yeah. looking so content. Yeah. <laughs> So this next question is from Sandra, and she says, Julian's radical withdrawal from the workaday quotidian realities, which constitute much of human life, both intrigues and perplexes me. Is it necessary to be separated from the world, her street side window notwithstanding, in order to draw closer to God? And if so, of what use is our mortal life? Why wall oneself off from creation? if creation is kaleidoscopically shot through with God? Well, let's say first that um, I think the way God works with the vast majority of us is God works with us and is present to us in our presence to each other, you know, uh, in our love for each other and respect for each other and helping each other and the, the, the relatedness of the of the of ourselves, father, mother, sister, brother. That's why we have us, 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 <laughs> and uh, and that's true. But what's really interesting in the Catholic tradition is that religious orders like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Jesuits—they all it's a commitment to God, a vowed commitment, with a form of ministry to the world, education, hospital work parishes. But what's also interesting about the Catholic Church is with cloistered orders, they have no ministry. They go in and they never leave, and no one's allowed in. So what's interesting is uh, the, 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 Carmelite, the, the Carmelite nuns, or Teresa of Avila was cloistered. She wrote a book in the, in the cloister. Uh, the Cistercian order that Thomas Merton belonged to, the Trappist, and that I was in, was completely cloistered. 
no one came in and no one came out. There's also the Carthusian, which is an order of hermits. And there's the Camaldoli. Uh, there are people called to the solitary life. A hermit is one who lives alone for spiritual reasons. Merton says it's only valid if they sense they were drawing from the world at one level to be more deeply united to the world at another level. Mm. He said, otherwise you need to leave. You know, it's a calling, it's an unusual calling, but it is a calling for solitude that we're not just, Jesus, Jesus was asked, what's the first commandment? What's the greatest commandment? That is, what is out of all the beautiful things that you say, what is it if we would align our heart with that, everything else you say would fall into place? He said, the first commandment is to love God see, mm. with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole thing, and then your neighbor is yourself. And so it gives these, this, this solitary hiddenness gives witness to God. To be a God seeker bears witness to the ultimacy of God. Teresa of Avila, let nothing disturb thee, let nothing frighten thee. All things are passing, God alone remaineth. Patience obtains all things. Why? Just be patient. Pretty soon we'll all be dead. See, so patience obtains all things because God alone <laughs> remaineth. See, and who we are mm -hmm. in God remaineth. And we express it mainly through each other. See? Mm -hmm. But there are some people who are called, like Julian, it's a vocation, it's a charism. Mm -hmm. And the fruit of it is in the quality of her heart. Again, what a beautiful woman. What a beautiful, mm -hmm. present woman she was. And I'd like to say something else, too, about all of us. In the midst of our family life, in the midst of our ministry or our service or our concern, there's a place within us, it's a hidden place, that, belong, that, that no, one, uh, no one enters there, but God's there. Mm. And we're drawn into that place unexplainably. Even our reflective thinking self it can't get in there. Mm -hmm. So there's like a hiddenness in the set, like the axis of the turning world. It's utterly solitary. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's invisible to our finite eyes. It, it's, and it's the, the hidden center from which all the interconnectedness flows out and from which makes interconnectedness possible. And there's mm -hmm. something about silent prayer or deep communion with God in silent prayer that somehow enters into that axis. We, we, and we kind of disappear from ourselves in reflective consciousness. In deep meditative states, the stillness gets so subtle that we, that we disappear from ourselves in reflective consciousness. We vanish away from ourselves and our reflective awareness of ourselves because we're beyond ourselves. And then when we return, Teresa of Avila says, we don't know if anything happened in one sense because we weren't there. But we do because we emerge that we're different. She says that we, uh, one, we know that we were in God and God was in us. We know that our only will is to do the will of God. We're committed to that. And thirdly, she said, we emerge as a butterfly with tattered wings. This is not the beloved, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved, that everything's infinitely less than the beloved that alone fulfills me. But once I accept that, then this little thing is the presence of the beloved. This person who just mm. walked in the room is the presence of the beloved. See, uh, uh, The sound of my own breath is the presence of the beloved. So I suggest there's a solitary hiddenness in the center of all of us. Mm -hmm. and, we're, and it's where art comes from. It's where poetry comes from. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's for ra- radical. Where life comes from. Uh, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, just to speak to Sandra's question, it sounds like it, it, it's certainly not necessary to be separated oh. from the world, oh. world to draw closer to God, but there's these radical um, expressions of of <laughs> ways to be close to God, and one one would be like the hermit showing representing this inner hidden place that we can find in God. Also, I know I've heard you speak about Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King. They represent these kind of radical components of of the personality that we might have small pieces of, but they they kind of show it um, to its fullness. It's not necessary to be isolated to to be one with God. If it did, 99% of us are in deep trouble. (laughs) <laughs> because we're not isolated. You just think about yeah. this. You know, that's like yeah. uh, that's, that, yeah. that makes no sense. See, <laughs> and uh, so I think what's necessary is that we walk our walk as best we can to be faithful to what we believe in our heart, who God is calling us to be, and to mm-hmm. share it with others. And the substance of that is love. I think that's what's yeah. necessary. And um, con- or conscience. Mm-hmm. Where am I at with this? Yeah, and knowing that someone like Julian did separate herself, that gives meaning to to God and to her story, yes. and and even to like you say, who we are in our deepest selves. Yeah. T.S. Eliot so. says in Four Quartets, a little getting to kneel where prayer has been valid, because these mm-hmm. cloistered monasteries, people come there on pilgrimages, just to be there where people give themselves to God in silence. They have a yeah. guest house there, and Benedict says, except the, except the guest is, is Christ, and they want wow. to come there just to be there. Yeah. Uh, I'll share this. I was, when I was in the cloistered monastery, uh, they had a big guest house there, and the abbot would read letters that retreatants gave there. Mm. And the retreatant mm. said it was in the springtime. He said, I was in my room inside. I see that I come here every year for seven days retreat. And I was in my room looking out over the orchard, which was in blossom. And there was a lay brother walking through the orchard, carrying two buckets of water. And the lay brother stopped, put down one of the buckets, reached up, grabbed one of the branches, pulled it down and kissed it. Let go of it, picked up the other bucket, moved on. He said, that was my retreat. He said, oh I, he said I could have driven all the way down there. Watch that. Driven all the way back. My wife said, how did it go this year? I would have said, amazing. But... He had to sit for a while in silence before he was able to see that. Mm. That's the thing. These things are happening all the time. All the time. We hear a child running past us on the street laughing or uh, the wind blows. But we're so caught up in the externals of everything, we miss this infinity of everything. And Mm. and that's the holiness. And that's, that's what the mystics are calling us to, I think. That's a beautiful story. Jim, the next question is from Zoe. Yes. And uh, it reads, what allows you to fully trust that God is, well, real? That in God we really do live and move and have our being. That life itself is not just a random accident resulting from molecules expanding in a vacuum and exploding to create our universe, devoid of any outpouring of God's love for us to merge with. I ask this as someone who is moved to tears by what I by what I experience as the absolute truth Dr. Finley speaks, or while reading the works of the mystics, or while watching wind blow through leaves, for that matter. 
In other words, I ask this not as a skeptic, but as a beginner, filled with so much longing it hurts. Yes. You know, this is very good in a way. Uh, Thomas Merton, uh, one of his passages, I put it in Merton's Palace of Nowhere. Uh, he says, uh, you know, he said, when people get on the spiritual path in the beginning, they have a lot of questions. And, and they could look for someone to answer their questions, a spiritual director, and well, they should. Mm-hmm. And he said, but you get deeper into it, and you begin to realize here all along, God's the one asking the question. Mm. And you don't know the answer to God's question. As a matter of fact, you don't even understand the question. He said, we don't like moments like this. <laughs> but it leaves us to wonder, like the rains fall from our hands. It isn't just the God's rule, but uh, like Martin Heidegger asking, he said, there's certain moments in life, birth and death, looking up at the stars. See, why is there something rather than nothing? Mm. See, why is there something rather than, why is there anything at all? And Dan Walsh used to say in the monastery, see, why is there someone rather than no one? See, mm. see, and I'm that someone. See. And so the interesting thing about the question, Rokas has learned to love the questions more than the answers. Oh, yeah. Because the que- in the question, the heart is open. See, and the answer closes with the answer. See, Ro- uh, Meister Eckhart says, he says, the rose, he said, we're, we tend to ask why, but like everything being explained. He said, but we, 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 have to give, we have to give up asking. He said, the rose blooms, but why does it bloom? It blooms without a why. See? He said, you let a horse out in the pasture in the morning. It runs with all its might across the pasture. Why does it run? It runs without a why. See? It's the anarchy of the ineffable. See? This is why Thomas, uh, Dan Walsh used to say at the monastery with Duns Scotus, in a way, the love of creation is greater than the love of the cross. Because the love of the cross had a reason to save us. The love of creation had no reason. It was the mm-hmm. anarchy of infinite love giving itself away. See, So uh, it's like, like passing beyond questions and answers and living mm-hmm. in kind of like quiet amazement, you know, like empty-handed amazement like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that sense of longing, I know that's, that's a, a major theme for all these mystics that yes, it is. the longing for God yeah. is God and, yes. and that people on this path experience that deep longing. Exactly. See, because in a way, see, this, the self that asks such questions is the self that's transcended by God in coming to us unexplainably. Mm. And, and just like you said too, it just deepens the longing. And you realize the longing is an echo of God's infinite longing for you. And the longing meets the longing. See? And in the midst of the longing, the longing is consummated while it remains. And that's what's so uh, intimate and subtle about these realizations. You know, yeah. we, when we talk like this, we can recognize the, the poetic beauty of it. And we're struggling yes. to put words to the unexplainable. But it's it's what the our own awakening heart tastes, you know, and yes. seeks to live by. You know. I thought that when uh, Zoe writes about your, your you speaking absolute truth, when I know I've heard you say many times, and if, but if you if it, listen carefully, I'm not really saying anything. That's right. <laughs> but it's it is that beautiful poetic 
intimations of what is ultimately true, truthful and real. That's why I like Martin Heidegger saying the vocation of the poet is to evoke the holy. You know, mm. it's transfactual. You know, it's beyond the fact. It's yes. the, it's the yeah. ungraspable substance of everything. You know, yeah. and the poet's voice bears witness to it, or the eye of the artist sees it. Mm -hmm. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Our next question is from Barry, uh, and it's an easy one, Jim. What is the point of this life? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep reading. Uh, the context is more complicated. During many of the sessions, it is my understanding that Jim has taught that we have all been hidden in Christ since before the foundations of the earth, and that when we die, we will go back to being perfectly in God. And that in this life, we may have glimpses of this unitive experience. I'm very much a beginner of the contemplative path, and I love the beauty of the mystics and Jim's teaching, and I'm increasingly recognizing what God loves, that God loves me with an infinite love. Yet I have this nagging question of why pestering me from time to time. Yeah. Well, I, I think I was thinking about this. I think there's several ways to look at it. You know, it, it makes sense that poetically we're saying that from all eternity, God's contemplating us hidden with Christ in God forever. And since everything in God is God, then why to go to all this trouble to go through <laughs> yes. this big torturous thing to end up where we started before we were born? Like, exactly. Gee, it was kind exactly. of a labor and it's a good question. labor intensive. Uh, meandering around with a lot of it's not easy <laughs> a lot of pain yeah a lot of pain, a lot of pain and suffering <laughs> like what, what, what was god thinking so uh, so one way to look at it is that who we who were poetically who god contemplates us to be forever in christ is a capacity that becomes real by living it mm. See? so in a way we we it it, it actualizes itself living it. And so we're on this earth for a very short time, really. It's like when we're uh, conceived and born, this infinite love exhales, uh, exhales us onto the earthly plane. And in God's good time, God inhales and we come back home. Mm -hmm. And during this short time from birth to death, we're here mainly to learn how to love. Mm -hmm. A life rich with love is rich with meaning. See? And we're really here to live out and incarnate the substance of love because God is love, like mm. this. And uh, Dan Walsh used to say in the monastery, we all want a meaningful life, but what's the meaning of meaning? See? And I think in the depths of love is the meaning of meaning. It's a meaning that cannot be explained, but it is to be lived and shared as best we can with all our heart. And uh, there's something divine about that. And something yeah. fruitful. It's, it's the mystery of the human experience, mm -hmm. really. And um, yeah, I think it's kind of like, at least that's one way to understand it. That's really helpful. Yeah, I like the way you ended that because it's, it, you're not really saying the point of life is, but that the mystery of human life finds its meaning in love. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Meister Eckhart says, uh, why why do you love the truth? He said, uh, because of the truth. And why do you love uh, why, why, and why do you love life? 
my word I don't know, but I'm glad to be alive. See? Mm. And Thomas Merton once said, the one who wants to die and the one who's afraid to die must admit the same thing. They've not learned how to live. In learning how to live, you don't want to die. You're not afraid to die. And and therefore, the life is the mystery of, of God. A actually, the mystery of life is the mystery of God. Yes. Incarnating yeah. itself as us, you know. And um, in our eternal nothingness without God, you know. Yes. There'd be no, there'd be no one to ask that question. What is the point of life? Really there'd seriously. be no one to recognize the point of life. Yeah. Seriously. I, I see. Yeah. Also, I'd add another thing to it in terms of the mystics, is that the point of life is to realize that we're the beloved. That mm. is, that God so needed to have someone that he, God could completely give the infinity of himself away to. See? Uh, and that person is, is you, it's me. See? Mm. And so the purpose of life, we'd put it this way, is to realize that. However, that's given mm -hmm. to us through intimations in our heart, whatever, and then to give ourselves in the love to the love that's giving itself to us. It, 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 how we give ourselves to our own body, our own mind, our life, our family, the world, to God, and the reciprocity of love. See, this destiny is fulfilled. Mm. Yeah. This question from Kevin, I think, is a good follow-on from from that question from Barry. And you've said in a previous podcast, you know, it's the way God made us. It's a setup. I think that yeah. God made our heart for God only, and but we can't achieve what we're made for on our own. We can't achieve it, and so it's this setup. Um, yes. So he's just asking you to expand on that. Another way I put it is that. Um, to know that the deepest issue really is not who my father thought I was, or who my mother thought I was, or my siblings, or my classmates, or my boyfriend, or my girlfriend, or my husband, or my wife. The real issue isn't who do I think that I am. Can I join God in knowing who God knows and calls me to be forever? See? And, um, and that's the setup. See? You are the beloved. It's who we are because God says so. Mm. And it's invincible. It's the invincible preciousness of ourself. Is that in us? It belongs completely to God, and that's the setup. See, it's, it's, it's the love nature of ourself. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, I think we're getting into some questions that are going to ask about some more practical applications. So this one is from Tanya. And she says she's a therapist working with trauma and I have my own trauma to grapple with. Thinking in terms of parts of ourselves, like traumatized parts mired in shame and protective parts in fight or flight and Merton's point of nothingness untouched by sin and illusion has been very helpful to me and others. In recent years, I've noticed how Julian seems to have a sense of parts too, as seen in, in her frequent reference to Trinity, or I saw, I sought, I had, I lacked, or while in her illness, she vacillated quickly between great joy and great anguish, and she learned she, she is loved in both. What are your thoughts? Can Julian help us attend to parts of ourselves and maybe even to parts of God and thereby help us heal? Yes. 
You know, in turn, I'd answer first in terms of therapy, then how it applies to spirituality, and they're related to each other. I want to give a simple example from, say, someone who suffers from the long-term internalized effects of childhood trauma or abandonment. And so in, in interior, it's one way to help a person like find their way through that is to say there is within them uh, the, the internalized perpetrator who tells them very shameful, shaming things about themselves, that they don't matter, they're no good, they're no, and really it's the internalized voice of the perpetrator. Mm. The sad thing is there's, there's the traumatized child part inside that believes every word, see, mm. believes every word in the timeless inner world of the unconscious they carry within themselves, uh, their traumatizing internalized family. So the idea of therapy would be that the adult in therapy with God's grace confronts the internalized perpetrator. It's not true what you're saying about this child. It just is not true. You're a liar. See, You're a liar and uh, you're not wanted here. And I will not passively, the adult says, I will not passively sit back and listen to you talk to the child that way. Because you know, how's a child to believe you as the adult? If the child doesn't see you standing up and, and protecting him from the voice, then you turn to the childlike part with God's grace, like Thich Nhat Hanh, I see you, dear one, and I'm here for you. See? Mm. And don't listen to that voice for input about who you are. Uh, listen to me, because God's speaking through me about how lovable you are and how I cherish you. And by doing that over and over and over and learning to internalize it, as uh, one example of how this can get sifted out. Uh, and at the spiritual level where it continues, when it comes to this mystical awareness and so on, okay, is that there is that in us that knows this, which is why it touches us so. See, mm. When we listen to it, it's not just beautiful, it's beautiful because it's true. And so the very fact we resonate with it bears witness that we're already being drawn into it. And then there's that in us that doesn't know it yet. And the part that doesn't know it yet is the part that still gets reactive. The part that still believes that the present situation I'm in and its outcome has the authority to name who I am, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so our task is to endlessly, the part that knows it, is to endlessly circle back and be there for and with the part that doesn't know it yet. To be endlessly tender-hearted toward the part that's still half-hearted, still doesn't faithfully meditate, see, still gives in to resentment or self-loathing or whatever. And, uh, and that, that, that tender-heartedness toward the part that doesn't see it yet is Christ consciousness. It's really God speaking through us and as us to the wounded part, which is, which is salvation. Mm -hmm. And then as we intra-personally within ourselves carry out that task, we then share it with other people. Because everyone's a unique addition of the same dilemma. See, everyone's walking around exiled from the preciousness of themselves and believing, uh, falling prey to the illusion that they're nothing but the self things happen to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would answer in those ways. I would respond. And would you also say, Julian, um, can help us with that in that she brings forth that Christ consciousness and the voice of Christ. So sometimes we don't know how to find that voice inside ourselves. 
And so if we're reading Julian and all shall be well just resonates with that sense of God's voice, we can read that to the child. You know, we can we can um, bring Julian's voice in to help us. Yes, you know, it's really interesting about Julian this way. It's in, in the long text, which she wrote mm-hmm. up for years later, thinking it through. There's a long section, I forget what she calls it, the... the that the faithful disciple or some who wants to do what the master's bidding and falls into a ditch and et cetera. So there's a, it's a long, she spent a lot of time on it, really. Mm-hmm. And she spent a lot of time on it because she said it was a dilemma that presented itself to her heart and she couldn't answer the dilemma. See? Mm. And so I think a lot of solitude is like that. We're presented with something within mm-hmm. ourselves like a riddle. Yes. And we ask God for help, and we walk with the riddle, and we listen to the riddle. And uh, and then the answer comes not as an answer, but as a light that shines out uh, of, the, of the intimacy of the search itself. It's mm-hmm. like a quickening or a realization of something. Yeah. So she's a wonderful role model for that whole process, Yeah, Julian. She really yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful, yeah. Okay, this question is from Brian. Do the mystics have suggestions on how to deal with difficult feelings in the body, like in a somatic way? I'm sure lots of listeners struggle with this aspect of emotions. Uh, There's several things. You know, when I would lead retreats, there would be silent retreats, so the meals would be in silence. There would be 20 minute sits, uh, silent meditation prayer before each conference, and so on. And, uh, and then people wanted to speak with me one-on-one, they could talk with me one-on-one, we would talk. And what happens is that in the, in the unguarded vulnerability of just sitting, suffering arises. And sometimes we would often, it was either undealt with trauma or trauma that they're presently working on, but in the ungardens it rises up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's through uh, unprocessed bereavement, the death of a loved one, see, and uh, it comes welling up. It'll also happen to people sometimes uh, d- doing body work, getting a massage. And when they get a massage, they start sobbing. Mm-hmm. And the body releases this pain. So a, a great thing. Sometimes in yoga classes, and in yoga, things, all, things like that. Yeah, the yoga mm-hmm. also does this too. Mm-hmm. And and, yeah. and um, so a lot of our, I know we're using words now because we're talking about it, but that's the power of practice. Real practice is it, we sit. How I put it, when we sit very still, like say, bear attention to the breathing or a word like I love you or Jesus mercy or whatever the word is, we sit with it. There's a kind of a, a, a descent. We can feel ourselves undergoing a kind of a descent where we're dropping down into a deeper awareness of and oneness with deeper dimensions of the intimacy of ourself as we sit there. Now, the, 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 the infinite abyss-like love of God is, is, is the abyss-like we're descending down through into God, but we have to pass through the layers of the internalized pain, which we hold in our limbic system or in our body. Mm-hmm. And so to, to really live a deeply contemplative life is, to, is the, uh, the, the befriending of the body 
and being tender towards the body and noticing where you hold the pain in your body, like where the tightness is and breathing into it and working with it. There's a close, it's, it's very it's very bodily this way. It's very present. You know. mm -hmm. It's interesting with some of the mystics like Teresa of Avila and Julian that they had also very somatic experiences that, that led them into God, you know, and, and I know Teresa suffered with a lot of body pains and strange occurrences and things like that. She did. So, and, and actually what I think it is, and Mirabai talks about this too in the work with women mystics, but I also see it in working both with trauma and mystical union. I think what happens in a way is because these people are more in touch with their body than we are. See? Yeah, It's not really true. I mean, I think there are some people that don't have nearly as much of that in terms of pain and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes people... Um, one Zen master once said, there are 10,000 worlds and I've traveled through them all. And yeah. thousands of them are hidden in our body, you know. Yes. And, and so while we walk with the pain and listen to the pain and bring the pain to God, it becomes part of the union with God. Again, it brings back to the mystery of the cross, which Jesus hung there in his body, you know. Yes. And, and the other side of it is, notice when you read the poetry of John of the Cross with Christ, how sensual it is. It's yes. so sensual. Yes. And it's, it's very physically present, you know. Yes. And that came out of an agonizing yeah, experience, out of trauma experience for, in his body, a, a very physical yeah. experience. Yeah, and it's like Rumi when the, the death of Shams, Shams, and he starts swirling around the pillar, and all this love poetry starts coming out of, of the anguish and the strange place for suffering and infinite love, uh, the alchemy of it. It's very mysterious, yes. really. And Jim, what I'm hearing in your answer too is that. Um, the deeper we go into these kind of pathways, the the more uh, we we integrate all these aspects of ourselves. So we become more integrated in our body. What our body has to offer becomes more integrated with what we know and understand. It's yes. like we, we we go on this. It's not just a um, a spiritual or mental path. It's a physical path. It's an emotional path. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like my body embodies the love that's uttering it into being so mm. that my body is the embodiment of God's presence, which yeah. is incarnation. This suddenly occurs to me now, I'll show this. I was in therapy with someone who was getting married. He was engaged, mm. we're going to get married. And he had a withered hand. He had a deformed hand. Mm. And um, he, was, he was having panic attacks because when he would get married, as he and his new bride would walk down the aisle, everyone would see his withered hand. Mm. And he couldn't be hyperventilate. He couldn't. He was so shame-based about his hand. It's very often very good to be aware of our body and yeah. listen to our body and beliefs about the body and the healing of uh, harsh or unloving attitudes towards our body. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Was he able to get married? Oh or? no, he he did actually. He, did. Yeah, he worked yeah. it through, and she helped him. She came in with him and and helped Aww. him, and he it was very healing for him. He she accepted it, you know, and yeah. he accepted her acceptance, and we extended it out from there. Yeah, uh, and uh, so yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I really appreciate Brian's question because I think that's so important just to highlight that not to be surprised by. Uh, pain and kind of trauma 
um, coming through the body as people learn to meditate or go deeper into your That's teachings. Right. And, you know, this is also relevant with age. Mm-hmm. Because old people, you know, you look in the mirror, you know, you're going. Not, not, you're not going to the prom this year. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's no beauty contest in your way. But there's a certain beauty in the elderly body, especially if yes. the elderly body of the deeply loved person, it has its yeah. own kind of beauty, a beauty of mm-hmm. fragility. There's something, I don't know, very holy about it, really. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And also, the body of the beloved. When I sat with Maureen while she died. To sit at yeah. the body of the one who's just died, it shows how mysterious the body is, you know. Mm. Anyway, it's a bit, that held that held something, but not everything. Exactly, yeah. like something. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, good question. Very evocative question. Very good. Yeah. Uh, this question is from Lowe. Yes. And it says, "I'm in corporate sales, and in the day-to-day grind of growing a business." In Julian's style with a window to the streets, would you invite Jim to speak to the implications and applications for the grind on the streets? Yes, you know, I think a lot of people work with the grind on the street. Mm-hmm. The, the, the corporate world is not a contemplative setting. It's deeply competitive and there's a lot of ego in it and stress and so on. Um Competition. Yeah, yeah, a lot. So here, and so if you're a contemplatively grounded person, let's say you're on a path, here's some things that helps me. Um, there's people who've done work with this, the spirituality of the workplace, and so on. Here's some things that have helped me with it, and I work with Is one, let's say you're at a meeting, and uh, there's conflict going on, trying to resolve something, and and you're sitting there, and you're aware of the dynamics in the room. And so you sit there and you ask yourself this question. What could I say? And how could I say it? In a way that would make some contribution to helping us get to the point we're trying to get to, to achieve our collective goals here. And And, and another thing is, uh, you're sitting there and you're going to see somebody for a meeting. Someone's going to come in and see you. And just take like one minute before you mm-hmm. let them in. Just take one minute to sit and be aware that when the person comes in, you want to be pr- you want to be honest with them and real with them, but attentive to them. Maureen, my wife, uh, she was younger. She worked uh, international sales in a cosmetic company in New York. And uh, she was on the executive board and they would have these meetings. And the chairman of the board, the person kind of in charge of the whole thing, um, when he announced he was going to retire, some people on the board cried. Yeah. It isn't just he was so bright and worked so hard, but he was so present. He was mm. like the soul of the play. You know, he was like a, a yeah, presence for yeah. the corporation like that. And so this is God's presence in the workplace, you know. Yes. And... Um, yeah. And Jim, how what what would you say if the person or what would Julian say? You know, just talking about the fatigue and the um that it's hard to find space to connect with God in the grind, you know, and I get tired and I'm I don't pray every day and I'm you know, I can get short with my children or my spouse or my friends. Um because I'm tired. It's hard. You know, a mystic we might do 
uh, some sessions on Simone Vi, this yeah. Jewish woman, this intellectual, had these mystical experiences of Christ and so on. And she was so moved by the poor, she worked in the factories right alongside the people. And she would come home and she talked about the holiness of exhaustion mm. and how many people are exhausted at the end of the day just to stay alive, just to mm. feed their family and somehow mm -hmm. participating in exhaustion. So one can be quietly attentive to the exhaustion and listen yeah. to it and do your best to listen to your body and not push it beyond where it can go and so far it lies within your power to do so. And at the mm -hmm. same time where there is exhaustion, because sometimes you are doing more than is good for you, but it doesn't, yes. you don't have the ability to stop. People right. are depending on you. People are, so this is a very intimate thing, really, like God's presence infused through one's exhaustion mm -hmm. and how to kind of be contemplatively present to it and yeah. as carrying its own lessons. Uh, also, that your suffering doesn't belong to you. It unites you with the exhaustion of humanity all over the world. You know mm. what I mean? It, it unites you to them and and so on. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. This is a question from Christoph, and it's coming from Germany. So, And he says, in the time of Julian, mankind was not able to waste goods and make the temperature higher. Jim, what would Julian say to me today if I were to go to her window? Um, can we still have hope? And would I hear her say, all shall be well? Or have I to let go of my expectations? A lot of humans will die and I have to accept it. Or is God's love also with us when mankind crucifies oneself to the cross? Is the good news that some humans will survive and life goes on forever? Yes, I was thinking about this, about, so if uh, Julian were here today, say, say we would come to the window today. It yes, and he's really fo focusing on nature and climate, climate change. Exactly, we come to her with the this. Sen and, the questions coming yes. from that. Yeah. So here, here's, here's my sense of it. One, I think she would say this, at least that's what I'm going to say. I think she would say it <laughs> uh, about our present age, is that our we have a certain intelligence, a kind of a secular-based, mechanistic, scientific, empirical, technological intelligence that allows us to manufacture things that serve short-term goals, such as in transportation, for example, automobiles, airplanes, mm -hmm. and not to mention mm -hmm. atomic weapons. Yeah. And unfortunately, we lack the moral, emotional, and spiritual intelligence to be faithful guardians over these things. Mm -hmm. And that's our dilemma. Yeah. That's our dilemma. You can literally watch the ship sinking before your very eyes, see, and they just push push right through. You see this happening at a number of different levels. This is our dilemma. And so I think really with global warming, for example, it's possible that many people are gonna die, actually. And all shall be well, ultimately. Because there's also something that's true there are those even now who are bearing witness to how urgent this is, and they're in the fray to be a force to stop it. And society changes. I'm having an image right now in Iran with the women in Iran taking mm, the veils oh, yeah. off and could yeah. possibly bring down a, a tyrant. You know, and some of them, they don't care if they're going to get killed. They're going to do it anyway. So some, yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement, never mm -hmm. give up hopes that something wells up 
out of the human family and uh, not just stops something, but transforms it. And mm -hmm. I think the world's always been like this. There's always been forces of darkness. And with Jesus, it was the Roman Empire and certain forces in his own, like Jesus is a Jewish mystic, own forces, but not to not to be uh, God, not to be bitter, or disheartened, or uh, cynical, see? but to to be reality based and stand in the love and do what you can do, to mm. be a force for the good, and know you're not alone in that. And God, that's how God works through history. I think I would answer that way. I think. Yeah, that's really helpful. It reminds me too of one of the earlier questions of. How do you not get overwhelmed by the suffering? Because I think someone um, like Christoph who feels the pain of uh, climate change um, and the pain of what mankind is doing or not doing, um, yeah, that's that's these are hard things to bear when you do have that moral, it, spiritual recognition of... of yeah. yeah, there's something else, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has... Um, in one of his essays on the uh, a full path uh, about eating, mm -hmm. and uh, he says, you know, certain things. Uh, some person on the spiritual path might be, you know there's certain things on TV that you shouldn't watch. You know, there's certain topics they shouldn't. There's certain things on the internet they shouldn't get pulled in because you can tell it's not good for you. It's yeah. it, it's shallow. What I mean is, you can just tell it's just. Uh, mm -hmm. so tribal uh, locked in force and ignorance and it just disrupts your sensitive soul. It doesn't mean you're mm -hmm. not sensitive to the suffering but because you mm -hmm. are sensitive to it you don't get dragged down yeah. like into cul-de-sacs that don't go anywhere and we need to kind of mm -hmm. be careful about what we read and what we watch and mm -hmm. what we share and kind of keep an eye on ourselves. And that that all will be well really is the mystery. It is. It's the good news, but it's the mystery. We we don't we know we can know in our hearts all all shall be well, but we don't really know what that means in terms of outcomes. It doesn't. And the mystery of the cross also is by human standards, things weren't looking good. Was she was saying, <laughs> you know, seriously, and. Yeah. Um, uh, so all shall be well doesn't mean that there will not be cataclysmic pain. Mm. But it does mean, this is what I think the mystery is, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with his wounds. See, it's the yes. eternality of the cruel conquered by love. See, completely overtaken by love. And even now it's overtaken by love. And we're trying to drop down, Julian and the mystics are trying to help us drop down to that level where we're being unexplainably sustained and loved in the midst of the unresolved. Yeah. Uh, this is a question from Lorraine, and uh, she's, she says that uh, when her dog hears our voices, he goes and lays down. <laughs> so it's nice. Is that because we're soothing? I, I would hope so. <laughs> I, I took, I was once on a pilgrimage with Fonnier to Rome for the mentally challenged, developmentally challenged from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Came there. It was a very moving experience, really. And I took this young woman there who was uh, maybe mentally, she might have been 12 years old, I guess. She was an adult. Mm -hmm. And I stayed in touch with her. Mm. And uh, she said, she said, I have your recorded talks. And at night when I go to bed, I turn it on. She said, you put me to sleep every night. 
<laughs> and I sometimes, <laughs> people, when they're listening to my talks, I put them to sleep, which is so soothing. It's hard to stay awake. <laughs> so you never know. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, so Lorraine's just uh, mentioning that um, she can feel this beautiful integrated presence with God, uh, uh, but then when she visits, I think it's her family, um, it's hard to maintain that sense and she can feel discouraged. So uh, with Thanksgiving coming up, it's probably a good question for many of us uh, about to be back in our family systems. Yes, especially if the topic of politics comes up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here's my thought. Here's my thoughts on this. It depends. Uh, sometimes in, in a state of quiet or sensitivity to what's explicitly mystical or sensitive, sometimes we can lose that even in a, a good family setting because everyone's talking all the time. Mm-hmm. So I would, if if that's the situation, that's also a modality of God. You know, that's ordinary people being who they ordinarily are with each other. It's blood. You know what I mean? It's just there's mm-hmm. that, and it has its own holiness to it. It has its own. You go with the flow, and you move back and forth across these realms. If, however, there's a family history where there was trauma in it, mm-hmm. and especially if some of the trauma is some of the people who acted that out on you are still there. Mm-hmm. And they never really admitted it, acknowledged it, repented it, and sometimes can be insensitive to the things they say. You have to, uh, and but they're not uh, acting out. They're not being abusive. You go there and you wrap yourself in white light and just do your best to be present to them and mm-hmm. you know, such is life, you know. Yeah. And if they are acting out in different ways, you might not, maybe you can't go maybe. You know, you have to, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. think out what's best to be true to yourself. And mm-hmm. so it, it depends. But I think that's, that's normal. I have, an, I have another scenario. This might be relevant to someone. Um, but there's those times when you don't behave in a loving way to your family, like something they say re- <laughs> you react to, you know, and instead of even if even if you're wanting to say, say you know, that wasn't, kind of you to say that to me or but you instead of staying calm and present and in a loving voice you can get reactive or defensive or and um (laughs) yeah and then (laughs) you know yeah somebody uh it's a situation i'm personally aware of uh this person their spouse's family believes that god sent donald trump to save america Oh, wow. And they're really into it. And so the issue is they're not acting out, but she acts out. <laughs> like, she, like you're, you're tri- People are all driving me crazy. Stand oh, it. <laughs> and so sometimes we're the ones who can't, we can't hold it yes. in, you know? Yes, that's it. Yes. Uh, and that, that's complicated, too. Sometimes you have to apologize. But sometimes it's good to be truthful. You know, it's what we're trying to do is model with each other how the mm-hmm. fact that we differ does not stop us from being one with each other. See, that's the problem. It's become so divided, so intensely partisan in an unproductive way. The fact that we don't agree with each other doesn't at all mean that we don't have a sense of love for each other. Yeah. And if we could model that with each other, it takes a level of maturity and groundedness. And So anyway, 
things. That's a beautiful note to end on. I, I just think that's a, the, the, it doesn't matter that we disagree with each other or even at times have little reactions to each other. That doesn't mean we can't love, love each other deeply. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a beautiful uh, uh, note Kr- to end Krista on. Krista Tippett, uh, one of her programs, uh, she interviewed the official rabbi for England. I didn't know England mm-hmm. had an official rabbi. For he, she represents all the Jewish people in England and the U.K., and Krista Tippett pointed out to him, she said, you know, she says, a lot of Jews in England are angry at you because they think you're too liberal. Hmm. And he said, well, yes. He said, but who are the people we really get angry at where we yell at each other? It's the people we love. You may hmm. be irritated that the neighbor isn't polite or your boss isn't. And because just beneath the pain, you see, just beneath the anger is the pain. Mm-hmm. Just beneath mm-hmm. the pain is the powerlessness. How to be understood. You would want the rabbi who represented you to understand how you feel and understand you. And when we don't feel understood, instead of getting vulnerable and expressing the pain, it comes out as the anger. And he said that's part of moving along together, you know, to listen to the anger, to work with it. And so I thought it was a very Mm. good point. That's lovely. I think another point you make around these kind of topics is, to be compassionate towards ourselves, you know, so it <laughs> starts with us. So if we're reactive um, and we we regret it, the, there's no point doubling down on ourselves with shame and anger towards ourselves. Yes. It doesn't help because we're trying to relieve ourselves of that kind of reactivity. Yes. So we can kind of practice with ourselves first. Sometimes people in therapy will they'll, they'll disclose this thing about them. Mm-hmm. And those, they'll blurt it out and say, I hate this about myself. Mm. I hate this about myself. And uh, the, the thing is, this is really true. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, 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 sometimes I, I can say I feel I'm not safe to be with. Mm. I'm not safe to be because there's a split off broken part, that the thorn in the flesh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to yes. do, I do. And I asked God to remove the thorn. God said, leave it there. That's where you mm. learn to depend on me. And the thorn is your teacher. Thomas Merton once said in the monastery, when it, he said, whenever we fall and uh, fall short of our own ideals, especially if someone saw it, and we get discouraged, we should always meditate on discouragement. It reveals the secret ide- agenda, the holy me. See, mm-hmm. how you or you or you could do something like that, but moi, see? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're infinitely love broken people, every one of us, really. Yeah. And if we could just bring that into into our own hearts, exactly. then we might be able to offer it to others exactly. more fully. Yeah. Well, Jim, this closes season six. I, I think it's been a wonderful season with Julian. Me too. It was, it was really gorgeous, very, very lovely. And I know in January we're going to pick up with Meister Eckhart, which will be great. That's exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well, have a wonderful Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year. Same to you. Turning to the mystics yes. will be back. And the same yeah. to all the people that are listening and watching this with us. Blessings, yes. blessings, blessings over the holidays for everybody. What a, what a, it, we already have our Christmas gift getting to be a part of this community. Yeah, it's true. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Corey, too. Thanks, Corey. Yes, thank you always. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics. 
a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.